We are in Nehemiah chapter 6 this morning, verses 1 through 16. Nehemiah chapter 6. And let me just um, reiterate the importance of uh, the for the young people on Thursday at Riff. We've been talking about why we believe the Bible is the Word of God, why it differs from other supposed holy books around the world? Is it just that we've grown up being taught this? Or is it really a reason that we have for believing that the Bible is the Word of God? I don't want to ever encourage anyone to just uh, accept a blind faith, but we have reason. We have um, more than reason for knowing that the Bible, although it's written by about 40 different men over a period of 1,600 years from different backgrounds, different education levels, different occupations, sometimes they hadn't even read what one another had written, yet we find a unified book. It's perfectly unified. It comes together in unity. It's totally accurate, no matter what the Bible speaks to. It's perfectly accurate in everything it says. And archaeological and scientific discoveries throughout the years have continued to verify that. But it's also prophetic. It told us what would happen before it happened in detail that's unexplainable. It's impossible that men, if they have their if they're getting their knowledge from themselves, if it's coming from their own mind, could write such a perfect book that's unified, accurate, and perfectly prophetic. Everything that it has foretold that should have come true as of this date in history has been fulfilled perfectly and in ways that we can't even imagine. So make sure that you sort of take those truths and reiterate them at home with your young people. Nehemiah chapter 6, and it will be up on the screen in a few moments if you would like to view it from the screen. But over the preceding weeks, we've seen God's kingdom being fortified in Israel, in Judah. We've seen God use a faithful man to leave a respected position. He was the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes and returned back to the land of Judah, to, to his homeland, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. We've seen Nehemiah's trust in God, God's promises, and Nehemiah's commitment to God, to obeying him. We've seen his leadership, direction, and purpose. We've seen him, we've seen Nehemiah making sacrifices for the sake of the kingdom, not obtaining or purchasing land for himself, but making sacrifices for the people and for the purpose of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. We've seen God use a Gentile king, again, Artaxerxes, to fund and support Nehemiah to build those walls. It's amazing how God works. We've seen God's people working together with purpose and endurance to accomplish God's work. But above all, we've seen a great God, the King of Israel, sovereign, in control, working 
all things according to his own purpose, yet blessing and using his people for his glory. But we've also seen opposition against Judah, against God's purposes. The enemies of Judah, and therefore the enemies of God, seeking to stop the building or rebuilding of the walls. Satan at work to stop the kingdom of Judah from being secured, being reestablished. The surrounding nations used intimidation via ridicule. They used the threat of violence. Satan also worked in the heart of the Jews to discourage the people. They became discouraged in their ranks because of division, because of abuses, because the project was difficult. And so they became discouraged and eventually division rose up. And we've seen Nehemiah deal with those things. And now we've come to chapter six of the book of Nehemiah. And we see the enemies of God running out of time, so to speak. Look at verses one and two. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of the enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together at Hakafurim on the plain of Onar. But they intended to do me harm. When the enemies of Judah heard that the walls were completed now, Jerusalem was soon to be fully fortified, giving the Jews security and independence from those surrounding people. Once the gates are set in place, the only way that the enemies can overthrow the Jews is through either a long, difficult siege or breaking the walls back down. Actually, even during this time of rebuilding, the enemies of Judah had failed to maintain dominance as the walls were being constructed. If the gates are now set in place, the enemies have no hope of overthrowing them or continuing as they had for many years to manipulate the people and use the people of Judah. So Sanballat and Geshem devised another plan this time intending to trick Nehemiah into leaving the work for a meeting on the plain of Onar in Hakafurim. But Nehemiah knew that they had ulterior motives. He knew that their intent was to harm or even to kill him. How did Nehemiah know this? The text doesn't tell us. But we can be sure Nehemiah knew the character or lack thereof of these men. He knew that he knew what was in the heart of all those in opposition to God. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can even understand the heart of man? It is against God. That's the condition that we're born into. These were unrighteous men. They were against Judah, and therefore they were against God. They could not be trusted, and Nehemiah knew it. But knowing their hearts, Nehemiah knew they intended to do me harm. 
That's what verse 2 tells us. He knew their hearts, and he did not fall to the deceitful plan. Notice how he responds in verses 3 and 4. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in the same way. And I answered them in the same manner. Nehemiah here refuses to get distracted by the intentions of the ungodly, even apart from the danger that he would be facing. He's not going to be distracted. He was intent on his work, committed to God's kingdom and to God's people. Notice the enemies of Judah were relentless, weren't they? Four different times they approached him with the same argument, with the same temptation, so to speak, believing that somehow their persistence would cause Nehemiah to give in to what they wanted. But it didn't work. Now, I wanted to stop here for a second because I think this is extremely important. And understand, I'm not trying to correlate these enemies with our children. But there's a principle here. Just as it would be easy for Nehemiah to give in due to the relentless nagging of his enemies, sometimes it's easy. I mean, I've been there. It's easy as parents to give in to our children when they persist too. Because we love them. They're not our enemies. Mommy, please. Please, Mommy. Please, Daddy. And they keep saying it and saying it. And eventually, we don't want to be bugged anymore. And so we give in to them. Nehemiah did not give in. We need to stand for what is right. Our yes should be yes and our no should be no. We should never give in because our children ask us trying to get their way. If we do that, what do we do? We are rewarding them for bad behavior. Just because they bug us, we give in. When we said no the first time, especially when it's for a good reason. Nehemiah stuck to his guns. Now, yes, there was a threat involved. He knew the hearts of these people. But again, there's a principle here. He did not let the aggravation motivate him to give in to their demands and their deception. So we see a change in tactic, false accusation. Nehemiah 6, 5, and, 5 through 7, as we continue in the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. <clears throat> and you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, let us take counsel together. He is claiming, I mean, this is, he's charging him with treason. He's saying that Nehemiah has turned against King Artaxerxes, that's supporting him and funding him, standing behind him. And now Nehemiah wants to be king. He's governor. He is 
submission, submit, submit, I can't get the word out. He is submitting to King Artaxerxes. He's not rebelling against the king. He is following Lord. He is living for the Lord. He's not in rebellion against the king of Persia, is he? Not at all. He's being accused of treason here. This was no small charge. Obviously, Sanballat and Gershom knew that this wasn't the case. I suspect that they believed if we tell a lie, a lie loudly enough and long enough, people will start to believe it. They were telling a lie against God's people. There are many in the world today that speak with great authority, but they speak lies. They know that the gullible will believe them if they speak it loudly enough and long enough. While we should not expect the enemies of God to ever speak the truth, they are not trustworthy. Yet we have many preachers today that fail to speak the truth, that appeal to fleshly desires, the desires of the weak, but yet they are enemies of God. They say, believe in Christ. He'll make you healthy and wealthy. He will make your life go well. You can have your best life now. But there are many, not in that camp, but say to us this, just pray this prayer and you can be saved. No repentance, no biblical faith. You can go to heaven and yet continue in your carnal lifestyle. That's not the biblical gospel. That's not the call of the gospel. The gospel calls us to repent and believe. Biblical faith is inseparable from repentance. The two go hand in hand. Listen to the words of Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. It's the word healthy. They will not endure sound or healthy teaching, but having itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's exactly where the church, overall speaking, that's where the church is today. Preachers, or should we say speakers, have given themselves over to teach what people want to hear rather than what God has commanded and what people need to hear. People need to hear the truth. Surely we don't give our children M&Ms for their meals. They will like it. They will probably like us for doing it. But if we truly love them, we don't give them what they want. We give them what they need, healthy food. And just as we, in, as loving parents, give our children healthy food, preachers that love God and love people will give healthy doctrine. They will speak the truth. They will speak it in love, but they will speak the truth of the word of God, standing faithfully as they stand up and proclaim God's truth. It's no light matter. It's serious to stand in front of people, even to be a teacher 
and proclaim, thus saith the Lord. It is extremely serious. I would not want to be in the shoes of people that will not speak the truth for the sake of gaining large crowds and making people happy. Oh, that we would speak the truth without compromise, regardless of the consequences it brings. Speak the truth in love. Just as we love our children and give them healthy meals, preachers need to love people and love God and give them healthy truth, the doctrine of the word of God. Notice how Nehemiah responds to this new tactic in verses 8 and 9. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah's response, you're making this up. It's from your own mind. The intent, as, as it's clear here, is to frighten the Jews, believing or, or hoping that some might believe it causing them to cease their work, to be without their leader. Nehemiah calls on the Lord, but now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. He calls for God's strength in this time of threat. Folks, when the enemy threatens, when the enemy makes false accusations, call upon the Lord, ask for his strength. We as believers are those who have called upon the Lord for salvation. We have trusted him with our whole hearts, but we should also be those throughout our lives consistently, faithfully, without exception, continue to call upon the name of the Lord. It's called relationship. It's knowing who to trust, who is perfectly faithful. He is trustworthy. He's faithful. He's dependable. And we can call upon him. No matter what we face in life, we can turn to him. So when you're threatened, when false accusations are made against you, turn to the Lord. Cry out to him. We see a third tactic by the enemies here in verse 10. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehitabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Now he's confined to his home, but he's suggesting that Nehemiah goes with him to the temple. That's interesting. And there's probably various reasons for that. But whatever reason here, Nehemiah is summoned to uh, Shemaiah's home. And he finds himself at his house. And Shemaiah urges him to seek the protection of the temple, suggesting that the enemies of Judah are coming to kill him. They're after you, Nehemiah. It's like he's trying to make himself look like He's doing Nehemiah a favor. He's on his side, but he is not on his side. As it becomes clear in verse 11, Shemaiah's suggestion is dressed up as an oracle from God. 
He's trying to speak as a prophet here, claiming a message from the Lord. Yet would God instruct Nehemiah to disobey his word? Nehemiah was no priest. He was a cupbearer that had now become governor of Judah. He had no right to the temple proper. King Uzziah had trespassed the temple and escaped only with leprosy. If Nehemiah tried to save himself in this way, it could actually cost him his life. Nehemiah knew better. He did not buy into this temptation to save himself, but he trusted God. He realized what was going on, but regardless, he trusted God. And so again, Nehemiah responds in verses 11, 12, and 13. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I should go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired. Verse 13, for this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Nehemiah quickly responds, I will not go in. He knew that Shemaiah had not been sent by the Lord. He had been hired to cause Nehemiah to fear, to cause him to sin, to give him a bad name, as it says here. That's exactly what the enemies of God seek to do to those that live righteously. You know, I've never ceased to be amazed at how many times I've seen people profess the Lord and all their ungodly friends would begin to do everything they can to cause them to sin. I've seen people make professions of Christ, come out of alcoholism and drug addiction, and all their friends just huddle around them. And instead of selling them the booze and the drugs, often um, trying to think of that kind of drug that's so common um, with people we've worked with. Um, it's, it's, what's that? <laughs> uh, but anyway, drug's a drug. But they start giving it to them. Oh, just take this. I'll give it to you. And years ago, I was reading an article in Reader's Digest, and it talked about in a seafood market how that, uh, you know, uh, the owner can put crabs in a barrel, and they don't have to put a lid on the barrel, barrel because if one crab starts to crawl out, Another one will grab it and pull it back in. And that's true. And I thought, man, what an illustration. Because that's exactly what happens. But God is greater. God is able to save to the uttermost those who believe. God is able to set us free. So although that attempts to happen, we can thank God that he's greater. That's exactly what happened with Nehemiah. In verses 11 through 13. They tried to cause him to fear. They tried to cause him to do wrong. 
but he did not yield to the temptation. Nehemiah prays for justice in verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God. He's continuing to pray here. According to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Nodiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. He says, remember Tobiah. God, don't forget these. Don't forget what they've done, Tobiah and Sanballat. It means to call to mind. Don't forget them. As we saw earlier in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah here is not asking for vengeance. He's asking for justice. It's not wrong to want justice because God is perfectly just. So we should seek justice. But never, ever should we seek revenge. Nehemiah knows where to turn. He doesn't depend on his own strength or his own resources. He depends upon God. And so we see here in verse 14, Nehemiah continuing to cry out to God. And then verse 15, the rebuild is complete. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. The wall was complete. What a joy it is when God's people unite together to accomplish God's work. When it's complete, you see the finished product and you rejoice in God's goodness. Sinners saved by grace for his own purposes. That's what he does. That's the kind of God that we serve. It's not about us. It's not about our ability to work hard. It's not about our ability to endure difficulties. It's about God who accomplishes work. He simply chooses to work through his people. That's God's design. He doesn't just save us and take us to heaven. He leaves us here for a purpose, to glorify him and be used of him. And what a privilege it is to serve him. And it's all that God might be glorified. We're not seeking to bring glory to ourselves in anything that we seek to do as a church. We should never do that. We should be seeking to glorify God with all our hearts, pointing people to him, that people might see how great our God is. I don't want people to look at me and think that I'm anything special because I'm not. I'm saved. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I want people to look to my God and trust him and glorify him. The one that saved me by his grace. Notice who gets the credit. Just as we're already talking about in verse 16. And it happened when all the enemies heard of it. And all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes. For they perceived that the work was done by our God. What, what a better statement could anybody come up with? When God's people serve him, like, like Nehemiah and the Jews did, the enemies are first of all disheartened. That word means to fall or cast down or prostrate oneself. Either they became downcast or they fell to their knees in sorrow. 
but there's no question they were discouraged. Notice they perceived that the work was done by God. The primary purpose of serving the Lord, as we've already said, is to glorify him. Ephesians 1, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Chapter 2, verse 10. We're familiar with verses 8 and 9, but 10 says, For we are his workmanship. It's the word masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Walk means to tread around, to walk at large. It implies being on the move, doing God's work. It's not necessarily, this word doesn't necessarily mean to walk in a straight line to get from one place to another, but it's moving this way and that. Wherever there's a need, that's where we go. We're seeking to serve the King. We're seeking to serve our Lord. We respond to the needs of the kingdom. It means we are actively serving the king by serving the king's interest. The word created, created in Christ Jesus, the word actually means to fabricate or to be formed. Believers have been created, recreated, formed in Christ Jesus. But we've been formed for a particular purpose. And it tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, for good works. We're not saved by works. But the man with saving faith works. It's the evidence. It's the response of being born again to serve God and to serve his church. But the motive is to the praise of his glory, as it says in that verse. People want to know what the will of the Lord is for their lives? It's an obvious question. But can I suggest, don't worry about little details like, should I do this or that? Should I go here or there? Not until you're doing what God has revealed in his word. Not until you are committed to him and serving him in good works. I didn't know this till this week, but Spurgeon would not even accept preachers into his preacher's college until they were already preaching. Interesting. Don't worry about the specific details of God's word. Get busy doing what God has already told us in his word that's crystal clear. God said, you are my masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. I was listening to part of a message this week by John Piper from back in the year 2000, May. And he preached a message before 20,000 students at Passion One Day Conference in Memphis, Tennessee. That message was entitled, Boasting Only in the Cross. And Piper said this, you don't need to know a lot of things 
to make a huge difference for the Lord in the world. But you do need to know a few things that are great and be willing to live and die for them. People that are used to glorify and serve God are not necessarily people that's mastered a lot of things. They are people that have been mastered by the Supreme Master, the Lord. If you're mastered by the Lord, you don't have to have a master's degree in theology. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to have everything figured out. Who does? All you need is to be mastered by the Lord Jesus Christ. Sadly, most people in today's church don't care about being mastered pieces for Jesus Christ. They want to be liked, have a good job, nice house, nice car, retire young, still being pretty, I guess, relax, enjoy retirement, and die easy. That's the American dream. Piper said, that's a tragedy. Let me ask you this. When Jim Elliott, together with four others, were speared to death in Ecuador after giving themselves to reach the Aqua Indians for Christ, was that a tragedy? When friends of Anas and myself, the Bowers, flying over the Amazon in Peru, were shot down. Veronica and her seventh-month-old baby, Charity, were killed. Was that a tragedy? During Piper's message, he pulls out an article from Reader's Digest titled, Start Now, Retired Early, dating from February 1998. And Piper reads, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Florida where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. Then Piper says, what a tragedy. Why did Piper make such a strong statement? It's harsh. It sounds harsh. Because when we stand before the Lord, it doesn't matter about our shell collection. It doesn't about, matter about our nice house, nice car, our fame, our positions. All that matters is that we know him. And as believers, that we have served Christ and his people and done so for his glory. Talking about the tragedy once more, Piper said, at the last chapter, as you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account for what you did, you're going to say, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Look, Lord, my shell collection. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk here and there. Everywhere there's a need that we should walk in them. 
Let's pray. Father, 